Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is The Great Remembering. Compassion is our natural state of mind. When unobstructed by fixed ideas or emotions, we remember that we are of the earth. Mindfulness awareness is the path that reveals and empowers our actions in the world for the benefit of all sentient beings. Today we are joined by Laura Sims. Laura has been a student of mindfulness awareness since 1977. She is a senior teacher of Buddha Dharma and Dharma art. Laura is a professional storyteller. She is a senior student of mindfulness awareness and Dharma art and a practitioner of counsel. The talk is participatory. Through the exploration of a part of a story, an old Romanian fairy tale, we will experience the difference between practice and path as we deepen an understanding of the role of communication as compassionate action. We feel how through meditation, we access the fullness and directness of perception that increases empathy, joy, and intelligence. The source of remembering our innate connection to ourselves, each other, and the natural world as sacred. Here is Laura to take away the discussion. I gave the title to this talk, The Great Remembering, from um, two places. The first really was my thinking about this unprecedented year that we have all been a part of throughout the entire world. In many ways, we have actually been on an enforced retreat. And maybe we thought it would be one or two months, but it's gone on for over a year. So it at some point dawned on me that all of the usual distractions of my life, traveling, going to work, um, going out to eat, or going to the movies, whatever it was, was actually removed. And that I could really see this period of time as a kind of unusual gift, an opportunity to practice. And even within the confines of this situation, I realized that I would spend hours sort of lost suddenly in the sort of propulsion and preoccupation of the news or um, episodes of law and order or any other 
um, detective show that had a beginning, middle and end and solved a crime in an hour or else kind of drumming up constant um, memories from my past and almost falling off a cliff, diving into them and reliving them. I don't know if that's been your experience also. But <laughs> so I began to think of my practice as a great remembering. And what I was remembering is the very thing that I kept forgetting, which was that. I actually was in my house and could practice and read Dharma, that I had this luxurious amount of time in which I could remember to be present in the midst of all that was going on, even though so much of what was going on had been removed from my life. Has that also been your experience? At the same time, being here in one place as most of us have been, I am constantly aware of death, illness, old age, climate change, um, increasing violence in the world. All of this happening while I am on 12th Street and Broadway. And the second reason why I love this title, The Great Remembering, is that I was listening to someone give a Dharma talk and someone asked a question about looking at memories and taking the time to journal and talk to our friends, um, particularly, you know, Buddhist Shambhala friends about our lives and our troubles. And this person said, well, really all you need is practice. We don't need to have these conversations about our lives. And I thought, wow, that is a complete forgetting about the most important way in which we make use of our practice and flower and harvest our practice, which is the path itself. So I wanna talk simultaneously about our practice as a great remembering of the root of who we are and the root of all the dissociated problems and issues of our times, which culturally we are sort of thrown into constantly. And the practice brings us back to something very fundamental and also the fact that practice 
is what we focus on from the beginning to the end. And in the beginning with a, a lot of determination and discipline, but that the path living our lives is how we actually come to the fullness of remembering of who we are without rejecting anything in our lives. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Sound good? So it's very um, distinct. We receive an instruction, an uncanny instruction. One of the rare instructions of our lives that has no goal to it other than repeatedly sit down and begin to see, uh, see, feel, observe, connect with our breath so that we can distinguish between being present and what it feels like when we sort of fly into thinking. So in the beginning, there is a, a very, um, focused, paying attention. Otherwise, we would never have the experience of the innate quality of space that is the nature of our mind, that surrounds us, is in between our thoughts, that is a kind of ocean of calm abiding that exists, which we basically ignore or have forgotten. So in the beginning, there is this quality of closing down our focus and really paying attention as best we can to the breath. And when we realize that we have flipped instantly into thinking, that if we remember, we come back to our breath again, over and over again, 37 years later, the same instruction and the same practice. That practice is so powerful and so elusive that if we only did the practice and didn't apply it in our lives, we would completely forget to come back to the cushion or we'd come back to the cushion like automatons in order to find a way to freeze our life so that we didn't have to experience anything else. Meditation is totally related to being alive in relationship actively feeling and living. But we begin with this focus and this instruction. And what happens is that almost accidentally, something opens up inside of us 
And we begin to recognize that there is a place out of which all the thoughts, emotions, and storylines of our life just arises from and disappears from. And in the beginning, when that realization begins to arise in us, we have a sense that the meditation is meant for us so we could relax. We could have actually a vacation from the tumult and tyranny of our lives. But because we have, in a sense, uncovered what was there, we begin to be haunted by it in our everyday life. Suddenly, when we're in the midst of a sort of frenzy feast of thinking about something or remembering something or being so agitated by what is going on in the world that we think that we can't bear it any longer, something might pop up and we remember and we interrupt it and take a breath. And with that beginning of remembering, it's almost as if our eyes open wider. And then we have a kind of motivation to go back to the cushion because it is possible to in the middle of whatever is going on in our lives to experience some quality of spaciousness. That quality, that inherent, um, what is in Buddhism is called calm abiding or unconditional natural mind. And in Shambhala is called basic goodness or bodhicitta or the noble heart is actually becomes our friend because it is essentially where we begin to experience who we are as opposed to who we think we are or who we might like to be or who we have learned we are from our childhood wounding or experiences suddenly there is something else possible. There is a capacity that we have to actually breathe and rest our minds even in the midst of a fury, which is what is occurring in our world. So the practice that we come back to is what keeps making our relationship to accessing space more and more familiar. But the truth is that 
where the practice, the refreshment of the practice actually um, flowers is in the tumult of our everyday lives. So we're on the cushion, not so that the cushion is a special time. Today I'll sit for 10 minutes and then I'll get back to being a, a mess. Um, but I'll have interrupted it for those 10 minutes, but even that's all right, good. But it is when we begin to recognize that our whole life, everything that we do is an opportunity to almost re-see it, to remember it, to reshape it in a sense from a different point of view. And that point of view is none other than having accessed within ourselves the capacity to feel things as they are before we give them a description or an understanding. Is everybody with me? Is this helpful? So in our everyday lives, the moments that we forget are really important. We don't have to reject, just say, oh no, I failed. I'm never going back to the cushion because it is those moments where we're caught up. We're suddenly out of the blue, awareness dawns and then you say, oh, ooh, I'm caught up. That we begin to discern both aspects of our mind, the thinking that's going that we need in the world and the space. And when we begin to distinguish between what it feels like to be caught in the, I, I always think of it as a tyranny, the tyranny of our minds, where we're caught in depression or we're caught in exhilaration or disappointment or um, anger in such a way that that's all we see. And then we remember, that's when suddenly we begin to know that we actually have the capacity to feel what we're feeling, but not be consumed by it. That step along the path changes our relationship to experiences. I can remember very vividly the first time I was walking down Broadway and suddenly I practically fell over because I wasn't paying, I was totally dissociated in some kind of anger about something that had happened 25 years ago. And it related to all kinds of things. And I was, and all of a sudden I'm just like woke up. Oh. And that first time I said, wasn't that great? I'm so glad I was so screwed up because I could really see the difference, feel the difference. And then I had a different level of motivation in my practice because it wasn't that I needed to get rid of that. What I needed to do was kind of melt the thickness of the wall that would rise up and solidify what was going on in my life 
from the space. The space is what gives us creativity, compassion, empathy, and a discernment about what we are to do and what we're not to do. It becomes an adventure rather than a task because we have a place from which we can draw from. In Buddhist terms, the, there are three disciplines that we have and that's shila, samadhi and prajna. And that's another way of saying the same thing. So the shila is the discipline. We have a meditative relationship to our mind. We have an instruction and we can return to that instruction, which never becomes um, a great success. You know, this weekend I sat so well and now every time I sit down, it will be fantastic. It's a kind of ongoing process of experiencing our lives and our minds. So the Shila. And then Samadhi is a quality, um, an, an experience of ease that arises from having acknowledged, accessed, and as a felt sense, recognized the nature of our own mind as there all the time. So it actually changes our relationship to ourselves, to others, even to the earth. It is from this quality of being that we know and feel ourselves part of the earth at the root of all of the environmental disasters is our dissociation from a sense of samadhi, a sense of actually discerning what's real, of feeling. This little, um, you know, stone here. <laughs> and I thought, what is it that happens when we begin to be able to interrupt and rest our minds is we actually begin to see before thought. So we see the details of something and then we actually begin to have the pleasure of sort of connecting, meeting, seeing colors are not becoming more vivid because we're having a sort of electrifying experience, but our minds are not as obstructed as they were. So the world itself is experienced as more vivid and we feel connected to it. I always love watching the videos of this woman named Anna Breitenbach who actually communicates with animals. And I think there is a woman who has excelled in being able to rest her mind so that she connects 
with animals, just as there are people who connect with plants. This is a capacity that actually indigenous peoples honored above all else because it protected them and protected the world they live in. And we have access to that. We become more sensitive, more subtle, because we are seeing not through the filter of thinking, but we're seeing, feeling what is. Which is what gives birth to the third discipline, which is prajna. And there are many, many levels along the path of prajna to you know, enlightenment, whatever that is. But in the beginning, it is some kind of discerning intelligence where we can be in a situation and feel the intimacy of the situation, actually feel the feelings. But they don't instantly trigger in us a kind of grasping onto those feelings or thinking about those feelings or seeing those feelings through a thousand stories that we remember. We can actually even see all those stories. And the prajna is considered wisdom because it is having an experience, discerning intelligence. So we could watch the news and feel the sorrow of the world, but not jump out the window. And we could have a conversation with someone and feel the sound of their voice and become sensitive to the whole contours of how to communicate. So the basic suffering of human life doesn't go away, but the unnecessary added suffering can dissolve and be recognized for what it is. And with that, there is more and more sort of unconditional joyfulness, even in the midst of terrible situations. I don't mean happy, happy, but I mean being, being. I can't think of anything more important or more fundamental at this time than that. So I wanted to tell you a little, I wanted to tell you a, a very, very classic beginning of a fairy tale, but I also wanted to tell you a story that happened just yesterday. I went to return something in a store and there were very few sort of um, shopkeepers at the counters. So it was a long line. And of course we are separate. And I noticed first hearing the sound of a child, an infant, who was in a little stroller. And it was a kind of moaning, like, uh, uh, not crying. So unusual. And then I turned and the baby's hands were clenched and shaking. 
And the mother was lost in her iPhone while waiting for the woman who was, I don't know what she was doing with whatever she had bought and paying no attention to the child. And this child, you could see that it had, it was so frozen with pain and need. And I noticed that other people saw it and then other people turned away. And I thought, what can I do if I point it out, if I yell at the mother, which was my first instinct was to go over and like smack that mother. <laughs> but then I just looked at the child and I was the next person. And I sort of dropped down like interrupted, breathed. And it wasn't a plan, a thought, or a mission. I started singing. And then slowly, sending my voice to the child, I walked by singing. And I sang. I hear you crying, I hear you wanting, I hear you, beautiful little boy. And I noticed that the child opened his hands and then started to breathe again. And then I looked at the mother and I said to the mother, you have a beautiful baby. She was so stunned, but she said, oh, thank you. I said, I rarely see such a beautiful little boy. You must be a good mother. And she looked at the baby and then she put her hand on the child. I nearly fell over and wept. But it was, I'm telling you this because it was, I felt in that moment, it was being in the great remembering. Because what was important was not being right, punishing her, but it was engaging in what is there all the time, which is the possibility of connection, of warmth, of communication. And in that, then I continued on to what I had to do. But in my younger years and in the early days of practice, it wasn't something that would have come, that would have happened in that way. I feel like it's not that I have become a really relaxed human being and I have no problems and I can keep a diet. It's um, more that there is a kind of a place that I have to go to. It's always there. So I just want to tell you this little 
bit of this story because the fairy tales that we know, like um, Hansel and Gretel and um, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella, they are rooted in an older form of narrative. And in Tibet and Bhutan, they're called um, Drug. They are symbolic narratives that actually are the way in which these teachings are given as instruction. You receive the instruction to meditate, but then to help you on the path, there are stories that exemplify the cause and consequences by allowing you to experience them through events and images that replace the images that you have in your everyday mind. Making sense? So what I love about this story is there's an old man, an old woman, and they are as old as the planet Venus, so they're very old. And they have no child, which is in a sense for us, they, they have no new life, no freshness which is what we can equate with the quality of spaciousness or unconditional mind or basic goodness. It is constantly fresh and accessible, like a newborn child. And so the old man left his wife and he said, I'm going out into the world to seek a child. If I don't find one, I won't come back. No one and nowhere could he find a child until he came to the most remote forest and he entered it, even though he was terrified of the dark because his desire to have a child was so um, penetrating. And in the middle of the forest was a cave and the cave was even darker than the dark of the forest. And the very, very back of the cave was a tiny, tiny light. That's what it feels like to us in the very beginning, like a little tiny light. But there was an older old man sitting there. And the old man just pleaded with him and said, look, this is the last place on earth where I might be able to find a child. Can you tell me how to find a child? And the old man didn't answer. And finally, after the old man was pleading, the older old man said, Nobody's come here for so long. What do you want? And he said, I am seeking a child. I, I cannot die. And the old man gave him a moist apple, an apple without a tree, an apple in a cave and gave him instructions. And these are the instructions that would bring about the possibility of new life. And the old man received the instruction, which is the instruction that <laughs> share this apple half with your wife, half with yourself, and then you'll have a child. If you forget this, you will have complete 
misery. The old man took it, raced, ran through the forest into a meadow where the sun was shining and he became thirsty. He was so thirsty that he had a little thought. If I could put my tongue on the apple, that would satisfy my thirst. So he put his tongue on the apple, but it didn't do anything. And so then he figured it out that actually, well, half the apple is really mine. So if I take a bite of half the apple, then that'll be fine. I can just bring it home and I'll eat my half and my wife. Could. And he ate the whole half, but each time he kept convincing himself and soon he completely forgot and he ate the whole apple and just fell asleep. And I love this part of the story because I feel that's it. We're given this amazing instruction and we keep forgetting. But fortunately, it's not the end of the story. <laughs> and there is a narrator who takes us through so that the story continues and ultimately, there is a child, but the old man keeps forgetting and he has to be removed from the story and something else happens. But eventually we experience through this, the way that our mind can suddenly be so compulsive and so convincing and we have learned that that's what matters in this world, that we simply forget that if we share the apple, this enigmatic fruit that is not growing on a tree, like the descriptions of basic goodness of bodhicitta as a flower blooming in space, that that's what we can depend on to bring us the fresh, untarnished luminosity of our own creative, intelligent, warm, spacious mind. But the story exists because it is not enough to receive the instruction, but it's important that we keep recognizing over and over in our everyday lives what it is like to forget until there's even joy in forgetting. And then we can remember. And by doing that, we can become very useful to others in the world. We actually develop what's called in um, Buddhism, not only empathy and compassion, but skillful means, because the place from which we view a situation can see the whole situation without our getting caught inside of it. So we can fully feel, but not add the additional sort of story like the old man. Or when we do add it, it's like, oh, I'm doing that again and again. 
but slowly we melt it. It's insignificant and we have made it as if it's the most important part of our lives. So that's really my talk about the great remembering. And um, so if you have some thoughts or questions or insights, be great to hear from you. I, I think I, I, have, I have to leave soon, but I wanted to say that um, when you started the story of the child, the one when you went in to do the return and, um, and you came, you went through the tale of that encounter and how you handled it. And then you ended by talking about the possibility of connection, warmth, and communication, which, and then you went into a much longer discussion of, of that. But I really think that that's really the, the crux of what you're talking about. I think it's, a, for me, it's about being in the moment of the encounter with the other and, um, where the self is not there, it's just the spontaneousness of being with that other. Um, I got my first vaccination today at Yankee Stadium. And, um, and this is the Bronx. This is not Manhattan. This is not Brooklyn. This is the Bronx. And I'm white and different than most of the people there. Um, but I'm just like all the people there, really. Um, and I just had the most wonderful time because I was able to enjoy the end of what we've all been through and to be sharing it with others. And I did. One woman who had these great big false eyelashes on with her mask, and I said, oh, wow, look at your eyelashes. And I said, isn't this amazing? And there was another man. They're working there. And there's another man standing who becomes part of it. And I say, you had to do that because it was some way of maintaining your care for yourself during these times. And she agreed with me. That's exactly what it was. That, and I said, well, I haven't worn lipstick this I wore lipstick once in a year, even though I was online. You know, I've taken off all my jewelry. I haven't worn jewelry. I mean, this is just, it's the great, I, I love the great remembering and the play of, of um, remembering and forgetting. I just started What's His Name's um, book on forgetting. Um, primer for forgetting um, Lewis Hyde Ooh. and take a look at it because it really it's it's it it needs to be addressed because he's in he's ready for forgetting and you're still in remembering and you're working at the balance and I have to go but I really thank you for this because it was it was a nice remembering for me
I just want to say one thing about spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Because the difference between spontaneity when there is no um, practice and spontaneity when there is practice is the difference between just sort of like reacting to something and the natural intelligence that practice allows. Because sometimes we then discern what not to say as well. Well, I think that there's the balance of both those things always. Is that's, about, that's about paying attention, isn't it? Anyway, thank you. You're very welcome, Susan. Congratulations on your first vaccine. Oh, I can't wait till this is all, the, that's gone. <laughs> nice thing to happen in Yankee Stadium. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, anyone else? I'd, I'd love to. Um... Um, Laura, hi, it's Stephanie from Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Can you hear me? Hi. <laughs> You, in your story of the store uh, reminded me, um, and my practice has not been as strong as I would like it, but it's there. And um, when, when we took my granddaughter, finally, we got back into a pool, she went into a panic and was just struggling and struggling. And I began to sing a song to her. And so you reminded me that, um, as opposed to grabbing her and saying, oh, don't be afraid or learn to swim or something, just to sing and ask her to listen to the sound of this song, which was a soothing sound. And she slowed down and began to pedal and relax. And um, so that to have the, and I did that in a public pool. So I was shocked at myself, <laughs> but uh, to, have, to have the comfort to speak in a different language that maybe someone can hear and to maybe understand that's what they might hear. That's really, really wonderful. And a child, I think, hears music much long, longer before they hear words. Slowing down is a important part of our practice and path. Yes, yes, slow down, just relax. Well, thank you, thank you. Okay. for sharing and I want to hear the rest of the other story sometime <laughs> um Laura yeah hi. hi um the you talked about Sheila Samadhi and Prajna yes. which are byproducts or part of the process of practice and um, the teacher who wrote these wrote about these qualities actually um wrote them just as you said sheila samadhi and prajna and i i can't remember where i know i read a chapter titled sheila samadhi and prajna or well i think it's in a lot of buddhist literature because it's part of buddha which yes. one Buddhism, it's classic. But what are you holding? But the book that I was reading today is called it's Part the, of the Buddha by Chogim Chungur Rinpoche. Right. Mm -hmm. His early books. And these are wonderful um, 
essays because they are, they're not scholarly descriptions of Buddhism. They are just very down to earth. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, and I, I talked about it here. Yeah. So he's talking about awakening what we haven't already awakened, but that exists in us. And even though this is so basic, um, I always feel that the most basic teachings are the most profound. Mm-hmm. And that everything is actually profound. rooted in these very basic mm-hmm. principles, which we have to, which we keep returning to. Um, over and over again, because they, it's that we begin to see them in a different way. Mm. It's really- important to remind yourself, I mean, it depends on um, who it is and what you've done or haven't done, but it's important to go back and refresh and um, remind oneself because the brain just is so coarse. The mind it can be very, very coarse. And if you're not pointing it out again as a process, and and actually the whole everything is a it's all process and one thing evolves out of another thing. And um, within oneself and then extending out to the world as well and taking in. I, I think it's very challenging because we have been taught to that if we do this, then this will happen. Mm-hmm. Or that we can fix everything or we can just push certain things aside and only choose what we want. Mm-hmm. Beside the fact that it robs us of the richness of our own experience of life. Mm-hmm. It is only through this kind of consistent working with the practice in our everyday lives that we begin to actually unravel the knots, the energetic knots of lifetimes of habits that are, we're kind of blind to them. So, um, you know, Jung said you can't make the unconscious conscious, but in a certain way, the um, practice of meditation is about mm-hmm. resting enough that there is a quality of um, allowing the unconscious to be experienced. And that's where the unraveling of some of our sort of deepest fixations occurs, distinguishes. Um, you know, I, I'm very much in favor of people going to therapy or being involved in counsel and communication and working on issues in their lives. But when we can work on the issues of our lives, also having this um, perception or this accessible quality of mind available, then we don't get caught up in just, let's get another solution, let's make this better. But actually there's a a natural unraveling. Mm It's energetic, and we—it's like you're you're holding your 
there's much more space in which things can arise and not be, you're not shoved into them or they're not so dark that they overtake you. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but they still do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they still do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And it's quite remarkable. I mean, it's why, you know, when you were the great teacher, very often you notice that they're not caught in it. It doesn't mean they're not feeling. Sometimes they're feeling, like someone once asked the Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, what it felt like to be realized. And he said it was like feeling a hair on your eyeball. Hmm. <laughs> it was actually piercingly um, experiential. Mm -hmm. But how do we experience that without freaking out? Is what what we're talking about. You know, well, it's pure of the the necessity. It's I don't want to use the word necessity, but. Um, so much of other practices are addressed to purification. In other words, clearing, clearing the mind of the drip. And um, I don't know, but but yes, I have met several tantric practices are very often about cleansing. Yes. Not a kind of magic because you say the mantra or visualize something it happens there is a collusion between yourself and the experience it's um you know we have intention and where does intention come from um you know it's very there's a beautiful um documentary called aluna a-l-u-n-a which is wonderful to see these um tribal peoples indigenous peoples who are talking about their experience of the world and their experience of how the um, energetic connections in the earth have been damaged and how they are trying to bring them, repair that. So it, it's not a hopeless situation. Very beautiful to their awareness is so um, moving. Oh. They, Today. Thank you. Because they bring some some of the peoples to London to an astronomer who is very excited, says, you know, you won't believe this because we have a telescope and I can show you this part of the sky and takes out this enormous screen and shows them all of this. But looks to me, you know, just black and white and gray and um, and the elders looking and then he goes well there's one star there's only one star and <laughs> it's, I just said oh actually there is only one star and then he turned to the guy from the BBC and said maybe we could learn something from these people <laughs> <laughs> but we just have a few more minutes Laurie did you want to say something or you were just 
adjusting your head. <laughs> no, I just thoroughly enjoyed uh, the conversation. <laughs> plenty, plenty to think about or not think about, as the case may be. <laughs> we'll go. Without our thoughts. It's not about not having thoughts. <laughs> I, it's no matter, sometime you do a Shambhala weekend and you have said 35 times, you know, that, you know, thoughts still exist. And then someone raised their hand saying, so, like, when, when does it happen that I get rid of my thoughts? <laughs> when you turn into a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the things that, uh, you've reminded me of tonight is that uh, my thoughts are really valuable because <laughs> as soon as I feel myself caught in the situation, I I know if I'm if I'm at all present, I know it's time for me to try and make that space to because make to make that space that you talk so so to, to trigger. Whatever practice does help you do, as soon as as soon as I'm caught in in a situation that I I could I could definitely add to the confusion, if I can recognize that and then make that space in my life, there's a possibility uh, whatever I bring to the situation would be more useful. Um, so I think my thoughts are very helpful. It's just that do I do I see them, hear them, and then do I breathe them into space? So yeah, or then we we can discern between the thoughts that are like um our favorite, you know, um, what do you call like Coney Island amusement park? We've been there a thousand times, but when you are really lost in it, you think you've never been, you've never, oh, why am I having this thought? Mm -hmm. And then a good friend might say, but you've been telling me that for the last 35 years. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> so there is, there is intelligence, and then there is a kind of um, intellectual dustbin. Anyone else, Lori? You have this fantastic look on your face. <laughs> Ellen, so nice to see you. Ellen and I know each other for, I don't know, is it 40 years? So good to see you, Laura. Are you doing some storytelling online? Yeah, I'm working a lot. That's great. I feel that um, I love learning about this, um, the roots of these stories and thinking about telling stories not because the story is so interesting, which of course it is, because if we didn't get interested, I wouldn't be able to trick people into listening. Um, but 
that the whole experience is an experience of introducing people to their own um, imagination and their own sense of spaciousness in the situation. So I was thinking yesterday that it's like, um, it's never too late to go to the temple. <laughs> and it's one way to take people into the inner sanctum of their own temple. Susan, are you still there in Bali? Hi, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, there's so much to share, but not 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 a lot of time, so I won't I won't say anything. <laughs> Jumping, you're turning a, a somersault. <laughs> <laughs> Is this okay? Can you see me? You're on your side. Oh, you're lying on your side. Ah, there you are. I go. Wait. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm on my phone, so I can't see the whole gallery view. I don't see everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. I just, everything that you address, especially path versus practice, uh, how you unfolded it all, I really, I really needed to, to be engaged in this, and it's processing inside me, and uh, I've, I'm, I feel very grateful that I saw the message somehow. I saw the message that there was this program happening because I'm not part of Shambhala. Mm -hmm. I have no idea where I got the information. I just like, Laura, what's the date today? Oh my gosh, that was yesterday on the, like today is the 17th here in Bali. So, and it's the morning of the 17th. And then I saw the message, it was the 16th. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's the 16th. Oh, wait a second, it's not the 16th there yet. That means I can go. <laughs> I just got so, a letter from you today. So that was- uh, I sent you last night. I sent you a message last night. Yeah. Uh, I have so many things to say, but I don't want to take up the space <laughs> or the time. Well, thank you. It's nice to see you, Richard. How are you? I, I've never met you. Yeah, I've never met you. It's great to meet you, Laura. Um, I love the stories. <clears throat> um, I was a teacher for a number of years in a past life, and I taught elementary school. Mm. And I remember reading so many fairy tales, and you conjured back what it was like to read them. And I love what you said about these stories as a way to explain um our, our characteristics um, or our conditions um, and replace our thoughts with images. That was really, really telling. Um, and, you know, I, one of the things I thought about when you were telling the story about being in, for some reason, I pictured a Dwayne Reed. Maybe that's not where you were, but it seemed like it. Um, maybe because I've been in that, I've been in a store without a lot of staff right now because of the pandemic and long lines. And what really struck me was you reminded me of something I read recently um, in a in a in a book and also in a class at Shambhala just about what it means to sit with feelings that you have and not obsess with the feeling but just touch and touch it and go. And what the reason that stood out to me is when I was listening, when I was in your story, listening to the child cry, it felt irritating, anxiety provoking, 
and I, something I've noticed a lot is if I am able, and I did not do this at the beginning of the pandemic, but there is this opportunity if I sit there with that anxiety to get to the other side of it. And I, I felt like that was the power of your story and that it repl- you provided an image for me with your song about what it means to sit with that anxiety or irritation and then get to the other side and have a different action. And it, um, it just, it's really helpful. Like just thinking about feelings that come up. It's not just thoughts, but feelings that come up in day-to-day life when you're at a Dwayne Reed or a fairway, <laughs> like standing at a crosswalk and you're almost hit by a bike. It was really helpful. Anyone else? We're, we're just about, our time is just going to end in a few minutes. So I could tell you quickly what happened in the rest of the story. Because when the old man woke up, he heard the sound of a baby crying and in the tall grass, there was a child. So he lifted the child up. he was so happy and ran home and then um, placed the child in a basket for some reason outside the fence of his house to go get his wife. And when he and his wife came back, the child was gone. So he ended up wandering around the world searching and the wife grieved and went back to her house. So fortunately in this story, the narrator interrupts and says, you know, they didn't know what happened, (laughs) but I do. (laughs) So the narrator then told how an eagle mother passing by thought the baby was a good piece of meat, lifted it up, took the baby to a nest in a tree and left it for her eaglets. But when the baby cooed and laughed, the eaglets um, placed their wings around the baby and protected her. And then the narrator said, and the baby grew up in the forest for 14 years in the nest. So there's no explanation, which I love. <laughs> because, you know, first, I was thinking, well, how does she eat? How, you know, did they have to keep making the nest bigger? Where did she pee? I mean, just, you know, what did she wear? I mean, it just completely went crazy. But then I thought, no, here it is. The child was removed from our human madness, really, and grew up in the nest of feathers, bones, and twigs. And um, then uh, 14 years later, a prince followed a stag, went into the forest and actually the prince saw the face of a girl in a nest, was really surprising and was so heart opened that he finally, unsure if what he saw was real or not, returned to his kingdom. I'm giving you the summary of the story. And, he was so distressed that if the father of the king sent a decree out that if anybody knew about a girl in a nest 
in a forest that they would be rewarded. So you can imagine getting a reward. They're like hundreds of people telling false stories <laughs> for reward. But the prince actually listened and realized it was not true. And then an old mad crazy hag mumbling and so forth appeared and said she knew where the girl was. And then she actually, she was able to bring the girl out of the tree and gave her the implements of the queen and the priestess. And the girl then married the prince. So the one who grew up in nature, who grew up in the great remember, um, became the ruler side by side with the prince whose heart was completely broken open and who saw um, something uh, really real, incomprehensible and real. And so they became the king and queen. And for a while, everything was fine. <laughs> and children would say to me, is that true? And I would say, well, it's true until the story starts up again. <laughs> so what is the role of desire in our lives? Feeling ourselves drawn towards wanting. Desire is life force energy. You know, there was a great Lama, young Lama from Nepal at the Shambhala Center once. And he said, oh, I saw this great Cadillac and I really wanted it. And somebody became furious in the audience and said, but we thought you were a great Buddhist teacher. You shouldn't have any wants. He said, oh, I have wants. I'm just not attached to it. <laughs> so And that was pretty clear. But I think, of course, we have wants and feelings. But our relationship to those wants and feelings, that's what we're exploring and looking at. Good answer for you, Susan. <laughs> Well, I, I want to say that um, please look at the website for Shambhala because there these classes online and also there are Dharma art talks that are happening and um, meditation practice I think is happening. So thank you, Chastity, for putting that there. And I'll also give you my um, email if you're interested in my storytelling classes, which have everything to do with mindfulness practice. But um, I hope that you continue to practice for your heart and your life force and also for everyone in the world and the earth herself. We have no idea of what happens when we actually let go even for an instant. I mean, what, one of the beautiful things of COVID 
is that in many places in the world, animals have come back that were extinct and are thriving and the air in many places has been clean. So let's just keep going. And um, thank you all and uh, dedicate the merit and the joy that we've experienced to all those in the world who are suffering at present. May they have great joy within themselves.